this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we are offering four conversations from Season 3, Episode 17, our discussion on an exciting potential antifibrotic therapy of the future and other advances in omics. This conversation starts with Neil Henderson sharing colleague Prakash Ramachandran's blender analogy to explain the progress from early single-cell genomics to today's spatial transcriptomics. Much of this conversation describes what we can achieve with spatial transcriptomics today and some of the earlier technological steps we've taken on the way there. The conversation turns more practical when Jörn Schottenberg asks how much variability in the cell structure of tissue samples can be attributed to individual human differences. Neil notes his initial surprise, and although he doesn't say it to light, at how congregate some of these structures are. As Jörn points out, that's important because it means that we can devise therapies that if they attack or they sell at a point in disease, it will perform consistently in most of all patients. The rest of the conversation focuses on tissue samples. For example, are the ones we consider healthy really so if they came from a patient with a treated distal tumor or some other kind of medical event? First, Congratulations to our friend Scott Friedman on his Lifetime Achievement Award. When you step back and look at where people like Scott and Neil Henderson are driving the science and technology of fatty liver disease, it taxes the mind's ability to absorb and envision all that change. I don't usually listen to our episodes more than once when we're done editing, but I've listened to this one three times so far just to absorb it. So, you're in for a treat. Sit back, listen, enjoy, learn. And when you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn and Facebook discussion groups. Neil Henderson. A spatial transcriptomics matures and becomes richer, higher resolution. The spot size and the matrices that they use for spatial transcriptomics improves. That's another possibility here, Steve, in terms of literally looking in tissue. Now, there are kits available to do this on FFPE tissue already. The resolution's not, in my opinion, good enough yet. And the companies are aware of that. That's why the resolution's coming down. But that is another option here for intraclinical trial readouts of, of efficacy potentially. And I think that is such a hot field that that may be actually the the way this matures in the coming years. Scott Friedman. So you're talking about spatial transcriptomics where you can look at the tissue and the cells just as they are in the liver and see where the genes are being expressed and overlay that with cell-specific markers. And I think your colleague Prakash, your former trainee, has a beautiful slide looking at just that analogy with the blender, which you may want to even uh, describe because I think it's so apt. Yes, yes. So that's, that's a favourite favorite slide in, in single cell world is just how we've gone resolution wise from in the old days of when we took tissue and just mashed it up together and read out all the RNA sequence from that. It's like a bunch of fruit in a blender and, and blended up just into a smoothie. And then the next analogy is moving on from that, you can see what the individual fruit in the smoothie are. So it might be grapes and bananas and kiwi fruit. But then the next step is seeing its beautiful in situness on the top of a, a lovely tart where you can see spatially where the grapes are relative to the kiwi fruit, relative to the slices of banana. And so the, the real buzz about spatial transcriptomics is preservation of in situ relationships and, and molecular signals because you are literally taking a barcode approach where you anneal the tissue to an array and it's all individually barcoded spots. So the Clever Informatics team can work out exactly where that gene expression was on that tissue section. So you can imagine this is 
incredibly exciting technology across cancer, across fibrosis, name your area of biomedicine. And a bit like radiology does, the tech is driving this field very, very rapidly. So this is an area I think is only going to get bigger and, and more exciting. So, Neil, thanks. That was a, and Scott, the, between the request for a blender slide and the discussion of the blender slide, that was a really, in your original statement, Scott, that was a really helpful way to help folks who might have heard the two-word phrase spatial transcriptomics, but not had a real feel for what it was, get that. It might not be a bad thing, if you can, to go back through a couple of the other technologies that you're working with now, where people might have heard the buzzwords, but not understand exactly how it works, and share a little bit of that. Sure, no problem, Roger. So, yeah, probably nearly 10 years ago, the first sort of single-cell transcriptomes came on the scene, and quite rightly, I think one of the early Nature papers was something like 75 or 76 cells. So it was a big tech breakthrough where you could measure gene expression within individual cells and say with high confidence that a certain gene data set of expression of genes came from a specific cell. So the big step change here was literally the ability to take a set of gene expression and understand with precision exactly which cell expressed which genes. Because in older times when we took whole tissue of liver and mushed it up and measured all the gene expression, you could estimate and guess where certain genes came from, like albumin we know is made in hepatocytes, but lots of the genes you had no feel for exactly which cells were expressing those genes. And so single cell genomics really revolutionized that. And then it's, it's iterated quickly. So the studies around 2015, when I started that in my group, we were having to use three, eight, four well plates, and you would maybe, by attrition, only get 300 cell transcriptomes out of an entire plate, which was around converting it into dollars, around 8,000 bucks a plate, very expensive, low throughput. Then companies like 10X Genomics obviously saw an opportunity and developed high throughput droplet-based systems, which are very, very neat. So you feed your single cell suspension in, the cell then merges into a specialized droplet that's lipid-based, and within that are all the goodies to both break down the cell membrane, release all the messenger RNA, and then reverse transcribe that into cDNA with a barcode. So then out the far side of that, that gets sequenced as a cDNA library and then informaticians through the barcoding system can tell you exactly which gene was expressed in which individual cell. So high throughput single cell pushed it all on even faster and many a wet lab group you know bought the 10x system and it's very widely used now. And then beyond that what's getting really exciting is different flavors of, of that. So single nuclei uh, sequencing is something that we use and, and Scott's lab uses and that has a number of advantages including you can get the same type of information but from frozen tissue. So whole cell, single cell does not tend to give great data at all from a frozen piece of tissue. Whereas a nuclei prep and then doing single nuclei sequencing, you actually can get very rich data. And so it works on a number of levels. People can look into their old biobanks and sequence tissue they've had in the freezer for years. You can collaborate with groups all around the world and send each other frozen bits of tissue. So it opens all that up and the data is actually very good. And specifically in the liver, it also opens up hepatocytes, which are very tricky to sequence as whole cells with a 10x system. So lots of advantages, nuxi. And then beyond that, the other exciting development is multimodal readouts from the same cell. So for example, you can now read out the epigenome with approaches like ataxy from the same cell you've read out the mRNA or transcriptome. So you can get a feel for what in the chromatin in terms of enhancers, repressors, etc., what transcription factors might be regulating the whole transcriptome of the same cell. 
So again, this is exciting for potential therapeutic development, but also just allows us to understand even more about the biology of cell state and what regulates cell state. And I think that's another really exciting area within the field about, for a long time, understandably, we pigeonholed cells into individual lineages. But it's clear that even within a lineage, there are subpopulations. And beyond that, there are cell states within that population or subpopulation. So the multimodal readouts are, are, again, something that's coming over the horizon fast. Single-cell proteomics, yeah, it's just, it's really blossoming. Jörn Schattenberg. Fascinating just to listen, Neil. Congratulations. I guess my question or what I'm thinking is, how much do individuals differ? Now, if you look at different patients and you do single cells, what is the impact of individual characteristics and, and how much is the overlaying disease, you know, that we could treat as a physician? Because certain, I guess, individual traits are difficult to tackle with therapy. So I have you, straight out question, have you had the opportunity to look and, and get some impression on how much individual variation there is between individuals? It's, it's a really good point, Jorn. And to, to tackle that, essentially, what we've been doing with my group over the last two, three years now is building up the end. Now, you know, that's a very intellectually lazy thing to say, but I, I say it for a reason. And precisely because you said humans are, are very different, they're very varied, they are the opposite of a box of inbred mice. We've basically been going at it by increasing the end as much as possible to try and get a feel for that variability. What I will say is some of our cohorts in certain diseases are up around the 40 mark now. And it's actually quite remarkable how in certain cell lineages, the commonality there is across patients. Now, clearly, if you're dealing with explant data, and that by explant, I know people on the call know this, but for anybody listening, so when we talk about an explant, what we mean is the diseased liver that's come out of a patient at the time of transplant. So explant livers tend to be very much end-stage disease. So perhaps the heterogeneity is reduced you know, in that cohort because they're end-stage. I think it'll be interesting to see whether the error bars, if you like, get even bigger when we step into you know, early stage NASH or progressing NASH, for example, where it might get even more variable. But so far, we've been in a nice way quite surprised at actually how congruent some of the data is in these big-end data sets. Which is reassuring because it means you can use it to actually identify drug targets for treatment. Yeah, and we had a, a, nice, a nice little vignette about a month ago one of my fellows, Sebastian, we sequenced that NASH liver. In essence, we, for whatever reason, Bass hadn't written down at the time what the fibrosis and steatosis grading was by the pathologist. So for fun, before he went back to the hospital to garner that information, he tried to predict from what we've seen so far what stage it was. And of course, this is an N, an N of 1, and we'll all laugh, but he, was, he actually predicted the F stage with accuracy from the single cell data set. Now, that's just an N of 1, but it's, it's quite exciting to think about it in terms of diagnostics and also front-end binning of people appropriately into the front-end of clinical trials. I think that's another potential real strength area of this technology is to accurately stratify people um, and not have this heterogeneous mass of patients going in at the front end of a given clinical trial. So potentially lots of applications. Yeah, I'm really glad you said that because there are lots of potential reasons why no NASH drug is doing well in most patients. Even the ones that look promising affect typically a minority. In the case of the intercept trial, I think it was 23% of the treated. I think in the semaglutide, it was somewhere in the 40-50%. Stephen knows this better. But the point is, why can't we improve every patient with NASH if we have a good drug? And one of the answers may be that not every patient with NASH is the same. Some of them may have different ways that they got to the appearance that we see under the microscope, and some of them may have different ways they respond to the drug. So, you know, digging really deep, as you're describing, Neil, offers the prospect of enriching clinical trial 
trials based on uh, our ability to standardize features of the biopsy that are more likely to confer responsiveness to a drug. Exactly. And then, as you say, Scott, that potentially feeds into properly tailored therapy. Yeah, exactly. Louise Campbell. Neil, can I just ask, you were talking about the explant there. Do you use uh, non-beating donors? We use them for kidney transplants, for example. So the organs that aren't used but could be harvested for clinical research like you're describing, do you use those type of organs or is it purely the explant at the moment? And would that be a potential revenue of organs that you could try these data on? It's a really, really good point, Lee. So so the short answer to your question is we don't. We tend to use uh, essentially explants or needle biopsies or our healthy, and this is an interesting one that you know you can debate up hill and down dale about what's a healthy human liver. Because our best source of healthy human liver in Edinburgh is, for example, patients undergoing resection for colorectal metastasis. And so we take an area of liver distal to the, the tumor site. But of course, those patients have commonly, say, a few months ago had chemotherapy and what is a normal human liver? And you could argue they're not, though they're clearly not an entirely healthy liver. But getting healthy liver tissue, as you can imagine, is very, very challenging. Challenging. So it's a very interesting point you make, and it's something we've talked a bit about, but I think certainly in Edinburgh we could maximise that potential pipeline. The other thing that I think is interesting that we've learned over the last few years, coming back to this point about what is healthy. Now, I live in Scotland. It's very much a kind of typical Western world diet. People entirely reasonably enjoy a drink now and again, and by that I mean alcohol. So when we've actually gone trying to find cases of normal human liver, it's not infrequent that they have of F1 or F2 or even F3 fibrosis incidentally. So I think that's the other thing for us all to bear in mind that people talk about aging and senescence absolutely appropriately but the more I kind of work in hepatology in this area and Scott's probably thought this for years and Steve too but once you get above a certain age the liver's just got a bit of wear and tear you know it's been doing its best for five six seven decades it's interesting if you look at some ITU series of autopsy the number of people who have a cirrhotic liver that was undiagnosed who are elderly who die in ITU is something else is quite remarkable so I think we need to be careful and it comes back to Jorn's point about being careful in, in the, the human arena as to you know we might talk about normal liver but a fair year old's liver's going to be quite different from a 70 year old even though they're both said to have normal liver function so it's just another variable I think we all need to as a community bear in mind and as we build up the data sets across the board with all the groups around the world I think it'll be really fun to start to coalesce it into hopefully a meaningful you know to use the parlance from the human cell atlas but a meaningful map of normal liver. I'll, I'll tell you a little anecdote Neil which you probably appreciate we had one purportedly normal liver from a resection for a patient with a neuroendocrine tumor, pathologist told us histologically the tissue which we had captured far away from the tumor was normal. When we did single cell seek, we found a huge neuroendocrine cell population. So, you know, what you see under the eye is not as discriminating as what you learn when you sequence every cell in the tissue. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, amazing. And now, back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next week to preview May's Innovations in Care 2022 meeting in Barcelona next month. Until then, stay safe, surf on, and we'll see you on podcast. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.